praised as ideally eloquent by the Los Angeles Times, cellist Eric Byers captivates audiences as a soloist, chamber musician, and composer. As a founding member of the Calder Quartet, Eric has appeared at Carnegie Hall, Avery Fisher Hall, Wigmore Hall, and many others. I sat down with Eric in Los Angeles to discuss his exciting career as a cellist and composer. All right, so Eric Byers, welcome to Classical Chop Studio. Thank you. So I want to start with this amazing concert that you um, filled in as soloist for the last minute with the L.A. Phil. And it was um, Bern Eloy Zimmerman's Concerto, which is like the craziest thing ever written. So what I'd like to know is, what was that like to get that call? And it was, wasn't it like the night before or two days before or something outrageous? Tell me the whole story. Yeah, so this, this was for a uh, set of L.A. Phil concerts that were um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I got a text. I was meeting with a friend at a bar on Tuesday night and just saw a text from uh, Megan at the LA Phil who does the artistic planning and uh, she just texted saying they had a situation at the Phil and with with their soloist for the weekend and they were wondering if I could help out it was just all in a text I just looked down and was, I was help out t- totally <laughs> surprised yeah I was I was like um I just said I think so <laughs> I just texted back because I wanted I had a situation Years ago, where um, this was before, I don't think I had a cell phone yet. I think many people did, but I was kind of resisting. And I was at a, I was in New York, and you know, my my girlfriend at the time was in L.A. and got a call about a cancellation to play with the um, New World Symphony, and they're so they needed a soloist last minute, and and so she said, "Oh yeah, I'll um, well, I'll try to get a hold of him," you know, and. Uh, by the time I got, like, I don't know, they, like, faxed it over to the hotel and delivered it to the, whatever. Like, I didn't hear about it for a day. So I, mi- I missed out yeah, on that. Yeah, it was too late. Oh, yeah, was so I, then I was, this time I was just like, yes. Yeah, I don't know what is it happening. is, but I'm not going to miss out again. So, because these things are, are so unusual, especially this situation where they wanted to keep the same piece. And usually if, if a soloist cancels last minute and there's no one that knows that piece already they would just find switch it out right yeah just put on another piece right but this piece is so special yeah and and so daunting and they had the choreography right they had invested a lot in in the production of the piece and they had um choreography they had it was it's a cello concerto but it's also a a ballet and so there was a Finnish dance troupe that had worked for months to choreograph this and there was a lighting designer and it was a whole Thing, and I think they they really didn't want to let it fall through just because of one I person. And they were just not going to cancel under <laughs> any circumstances. Yeah, so their their plans were kind of like number one choice was find someone in Europe that I think there are a handful of people that played the piece. Yeah, like two. Yeah, and then <laughs> someone and one of them has a visa that's already that hasn't expired from you know some other engagement, and they're free and they want to come do it like. So overnight, they were kind of waiting to hear back from the people they'd reached out to in Europe. And by Wednesday morning, it was clear, like, they weren't going to be able to do it. And second choice was to have some people in L.A. or in the U.S. at least. And I know they reached out to a number of people. But so anyway, got that message and and talked to Megan. And she wasn't sure, like, how they were going to handle it. And she was also talking with uh, the conductor, um, Susanna Malkai, and... um, they were just trying to figure out how to handle it. And 
Well, when did you find out what the piece was? Because right. that would have been the deal yeah, breaker, right? So I had right? no idea. I, I called back, talked to Megan. She said, you know the Zimmerman Concerto? And I said, uh, no, I don't know what that <laughs> is. <laughs> and I had never heard it. I mean, it would be better if I knew of it or something, but right. I just didn't even know about it. And so she sent a, you know, the score over, and I drove home as fast as I could and printed it all out, just laid it out on the floor. And as I looked at it, I was just like... <laughs> There's just no way that, like, one person could learn this in... Because this was Tuesday night already, like 11 p.m. and First concert was Thursday? Yeah, and the first rehearsal was supposed to be that day. The Tuesday was supposed to be with piano reduction, dancers, and the conductor. So that already didn't happen. The next day was supposed to be with orchestra. To think, I have to be able to play this with orchestra in... Like, even if they cancel Wednesday and you do it Thursday, it's it's within, like, 30-some, 36 hours or something. And I started texting Tim Liu, who's one of the other cellists, and then, yeah, we were waiting to hear from Ben Hong, who's the second chair in the fill, and um, and then Tim was in a rehearsal, so I was texting him, and he couldn't look at the music, but he was just like, what is going on? And <laughs> I was like, this looks insane. And um, So, wait, this was your idea, then, to split it up? I th- I think that they might have generated that idea, I Megan and, and Susanna. And when they saw that you were like, uh... And yeah, because I was looking, I was like, <laughs> you know, it's, it would be tough for one person. but And then, and I think she kind of heard the same thing from Ben as well. And Tim looked at it and was like, this is insane. <laughs> and um, so we arrived by, the, by that night, Tuesday night, we arrived at a way to divide it into thirds that seemed like it would work. But we didn't know. There are five movements, and I wasn't sure which ones Ben would choose. He kind of had to, had his, his choice of movements and just how it would work until the next morning. But I just started practicing what I thought I would end up with all night that night. I just didn't sleep and st- stayed up all night and then practiced all day the next day and canceled, like, any, anything I had that week. <laughs> life. You just um, canceled life. Yeah, except for I, I had a quartet concert in Palm Springs Saturday afternoon which I found a sub for and everything. I was like, yeah, someone else is going to play this, and I won't have to worry about it. And then I talked to everyone, and it seemed like the the majority of people thought I should play the concert. So <laughs> <laughs> so I did end up playing that concert, too. So it was, a, it was Friday with the Phil, Saturday afternoon, um, you know, like Opus 132 and Mendelssohn and in Palm Springs, and then drive straight to... Disney Hall, and I got there like 40 minutes before the concert. So it was that's it was crazy. a crazy week. Yeah, that's crazy. While you're doing this like crash course in Zimmerman, do you like the piece? What, what? Yeah, when so we had there was a recording that the dancers had been listening to that, and that was you know with Siegfried Palm, and that was kind of the I figured they'd been dancing to it. That was what it kind of needed. The like, pacing and everything right. needed to sound familiar. And so with, with that reference, it really helped. But um, it was definitely a wild kind of logistical challenge of just how to process that, that information that quickly and be able to sit in front of an orchestra within 36 hours and, like, play through it. So it seems like that would take, actually, the nerves away because it's, right? Because it's like, what can you do? Yeah. You haven't been preparing this piece for two years that are probably, you know... Yeah, um, it was nice to feel like no one's going to be too critical. They're just going to be happy. If if you do an okay job and you get through it. Then, and no one knows the piece. <laughs> right. They're not going to be like, yeah, that's, <laughs> you're in the wrong key for like a whole page. 
Uh, that's, I think it's just really amazing. And so most people would have used this to like launch a career, but obviously you already have a, a wonderful career, but how do you think this will change the trajectory of your career? Do you think this is, is this something you want to put on the table as far as learning crazy avant-garde cello concerning? <laughs> well, I would love to play with orchestra. It's something I haven't done much of at all. And I, you know, really was, I kind of made a decision in school to just focus on chamber music. At the time, I wanted to share each performance with buddies and like have it be a really special thing. And I thought it sounded lonely to be on my own. And it's, even if you try, you might not be able to pull it off. So I kind of really committed to the quartet. But these these days, I definitely, I'm older, so it's, it's tricky, you know. But um, I would love to play more w- with orchestra. And I mean, I love new music. But I also love, you know, I love Dvorak and I love all of the standard concerti as well. So I'm kind of looking at, yeah, ways that I could do um, a mixture of things. And probably early on, um, commissioning new pieces or playing, kind of discovering pieces that have been written but not performed that much that are really good would be the way to go. But And maybe, I mean, you've... I mean, once the PTSD subsides, like learn learn the piece, right? The whole thing. Yeah. And just have it. Yeah. There's only like a few people on the planet. Yeah, it would be cool to learn, just learn the whole thing. And so we'll, I don't, you know, we'll see if there would be an opportunity for that. But I would definitely be excited about it, especially with a bit more, you know, advanced notice. It'd be. Right. Like maybe two <laughs> more days. Well, I was there yeah. and it was incredible. <laughs> It was was unbelievable. And kind of a weird way also was this concerto in the form of a pas de trois and then to have the three soloists almost added a dimension that Zimmerman didn't think of. Right, Right? It actually enhanced the piece with three. If it was two, maybe it wouldn't, but because it was three of you. Yeah, I talked to people that figured that's just how it was supposed to be played. Oh, yeah. I love that. (laughs) I love that. That's incredible. And it was also fun having, you know, Ben and Tim, like we were all going through the same process. So at each stage of the way we were, we had, you know, it was was fun to kind of share that experience with them. It was amazing. Okay, so I want to also talk about this article that you did in Strings Magazine in May of 2018 called The Power of Possibility. Then the City of Angels has limitless musical potential. So I kind of want to know, you've been in L.A. a long time, and like from your formative years to now you're just obviously living here and working here. So I want to know how it's changed and how have you changed with your dealing with L.A.? And mm-hmm. I think, Tell me something about that. Well, as I, as I look back, I you know, first moved here to study with Ron Leonard, who at the time was the principal cellist of the L.A. Phil, and... Um, that was at USC, and I actually started playing with uh, the guys in my quartet, the Calder Quartet, uh, that first year. You know, they I got a call from the chamber music coach, and they needed a cellist, and they'd played together the year before, and I was like, okay, and it's just a thing, and we just I just started it. So when I was 18, you know, started playing with them, and now I'm 38, and same four people, so 20 years <laughs> 20 together. 20 years. And it's... And aside from two in New York, we've been in L.A. So You've been based, right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, the city has, has changed a lot, but my awareness and sort of participation in other things has really It's changed, changed quickly lately. Have you noticed that? Like it's Yeah. I mean, there's so much, especially downtown, there's, I mean, it's incredible how it's, uh, we recorded there a few weeks ago at Zipper Hall, and I remember, you know, doing recordings there in the past, probably 10 years ago, and the only 
road noise we had to think about was like a bus once every blue moon and you're like oh yeah we hear we got a little bus in that one or there's this one elevator that when people use it, it you can hear a hum but this time it was just like oh no more traffic noise and motorcycle is just like completely different noise environment and it just made me kind of aware of how much more popular and um, exciting that and vibrant that kind of strip is along and dynamic right? and now yeah, they're going to yeah. do that grand project right where they're going to close the whole thing off it's going to be incredible yeah, there. I guess is it? Um, it's like retail and some residential right. stuff, and yeah. then the next block over is going to be a, a new culvert. A new culvert where that parking lot is. Yeah. Yeah, designed by another Frank Gehry building. So it's it's kind of incredible to think. Um, you know, when I first was involved there, the newer the Olive building at Colburn was like a parking lot about forty feet below on the level of Olive Street, and um, I remember as they were building Disney Hall and like the framework was going up. And it's just, I mean, it's kind of incredible to think how that's all changed. And the music scene itself has changed. I mean, I feel like kind of the Brooklyn vibe is like everyone's kind of migrating over here and it's it's exciting now. Yeah, I have a lot of um, composer friends who, as a quartet, we had commissioned and worked with and we used to do a competition for commissioning. So everyone would send in pieces. We'd have like, you know however many, 100, 200 applicants. And I was all struck by how many were from Brooklyn, and uh, especially the ones that we liked. (laughs) And now, like, so many of them have moved over here. And probably a lot has to do with uh, economics, I would think. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. just higher quality of living and weather. The struggle is real there. Do you feel like the line, I feel like years ago, maybe like 10 years ago, there was such a line between, you know, East Coast and West Coast with music. Like It was Mm -hmm. almost like... You know, you weren't, it wasn't, you weren't validated unless you were in New York. In fact, right. I had someone tell me that years ago. If you want to do this, you need to go to New York. I thought be, that's, yeah. you know what, no. <laughs> <laughs> but have you seen that line? Is it your concertizing with the quartet everywhere? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it, it's less relevant where you're from. And that, that reminded me of like the, you know, thinking about cow arts and com- composers that came out of there or like the south, you know, like the downtown versus the uptown mm-hmm. yeah, scene totally. in Manhattan or whatever. And I'm sure there's still differences, but it, do- it does seem like it matters less where you're from. And maybe it's, maybe it has to do with the internet or maybe it's just a, just a change in awareness. I was going to say, I think it's social media. Yeah. We're all, it, is, it doesn't matter where you're at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the integration of, um, I guess, art music and the music industry, commercial music industry. So the quartet has um, collaborated with the Airborne Toxic event. So can you tell me a little bit about that collaboration and and how yeah. important are these collaborations? Like you're not just doing Beethoven. Right. And how important is it to you that you not just do Beethoven? Well, one of, I mean, we just finished our first Beethoven cycle of all the quartets um, a few months ago, and it was spread out over three years in, uh, at the Broad stage in Santa Monica. And, I mean, I, I was, I'm really proud that we got over that whole thing and we finally performed all of them. Um, and that was really special. But I think as we were, you know, when we were younger, we, you know, I think we just wanted to do something fun and, and like, we had friends that played in bands and with Airborne Toxic Event in particular, Andrew, our second violinist sister, played in that band and, so um, there was this nice connection, and we thought it'd be fun to like, go on tour with them and just kind of experience what that was like. And at the time, it was great. I think now those collaborations are, 
I'm, I think it was like the time and the place, you know, it was right. exciting. And now I think we're, I'm, I'm more, definitely more focused on like, you know, the Beethoven cycle or the bar, all the bar talks or like the new commissions and stuff like that. But, you know, we, we did do a, a bus tour with them for a few weeks and like just got to see what that was like. And, um, yeah, that was a great time. And we did, also did a tour with Andrew WK, which was like, it's like metal. Like he always wears all white, and his whole thing's about partying and having a good time. And he has like this super great. long hair, and his music is usually like just like headbanging. But it's all about like we party and we do what we want, we have a good time. And it's like hard to tell how much of it is is genuine, how much is just silly, and like how serious he is at all times. And he put, he's put himself in so many different strange situations where he'll, he'll is he one of those youtube sensations um where he's actually recording not, yeah it's more like these albums like some of these songs yeah it's more just the albums he put out that got him notoriety uh, but then he would just do these projects he would like grab, collaborate with like a reggae artist to do an album or he showed up at like a there's some kind of I want to say um, My Little Pony convention or something. He shows up and, like, interviews people and just, you know, he just does lots of weird stuff. And and we were connected with him as, through, I think he had the same manager as Airborne Toxic Event, and we heard about him when we were, like... The first thing I thought of was, because he's always loud and just, like, he has this whole band, and he's just like, ah. And I was just thinking, it would be so fun to perform four minutes and 33 seconds with him and just, like, <laughs> ha- have him, like, go crazy and then just, like, sit there. And like not make any sound, and so we ended up doing this tour for a few weeks where we we had this set we did with him where you know he can actually play some Bach and stuff like that. So and he improvises and just does all sorts of crazy stuff. So we would do um, some of his songs like where he he's playing piano and singing and we're playing strings, and then we would do some like uh, some of our quartet stuff, and then he would. And we did John Cage, and then he would, like, improvise and crawl inside the piano. And it was just, like, it was a... Of all the experience we had, that one was kind of the most fun because it was just so unusual, and you couldn't really categorize it in any way. So you actually did 433 with him, honestly. Yeah, a bunch of times. And, like, we did it in in places... It was always different, like, what people would do. Cause it yeah, was what right was the after, audience doing? Yeah, it was, like, right after we, we'd play a bunch of loud, you know, songs. As raucous as one can be as a string quartet and piano, you know, we would be making lots of noise and then we'd just stop and say okay next pa- next piece is four minutes and three, 33 seconds and then the audience would react differently every single time like sometimes they're actually quiet and people are very serious and there are people shushing like shh you know you're supposed to be quiet other ones are people that w- couldn't stop laughing and they they would try to contain it and then it would erupt and kind of spread around the whole room in Chicago there were <laughs> there were a bunch of guys that they look like college kids you know probably big fans of andrew and the, the one one of the guys had like taken his shirt off and was like dancing around on the stage and then when we started that and he just he just like didn't know what to do but he was still really fired up and he just stage dived like into an audience that was not expecting to catch anybody and just like landed on on the, <laughs> on the ground and was escorted out and we oh, just no, sat there and just like not moving not moving yeah oh so it was really interesting i feel like that would be john cage's dream <laughs> to have a stage dive <laughs> yeah i wish there was a video of that that'd be nice that's incredible okay so wait let's see where all right so um well, let's transition from that to your compositions. Tell me about your compositional evolution. 
Well, I mean, I've always kind of dabbled in it, but um, never really. Like when you were younger. Yeah, even like in high school, I, mm-hmm. I, I found these pages of like I was writing some orchestra piece that I've never, you know, got close to finishing or anything. It's like, and other other projects that always just were totally like half half committed to. And then as I, I guess, when was that? Probably 2010 or 2011, I started writing for cello and like sampling myself as a way to, I would compose things out and try to make it all complicated and, and come up with like sampling one note here and recording it and having it played there. And so I went through this phase of trying to make these really complicated things and after a while that just seemed to um i don't know, i just felt restrained constrained all the all the time in trying to execute this thing and then i had written these canons that were is more just really simple you just have four voices that are all eight bars delayed from each other and did a few like that and i did a like a canon it's a sloth canon where each voice is going at a different speed or there's a few other words for it but it's like there's like a full speed part and a half speed part and a quarter speed part. So each one sounds like an, an octave down and it's half as fast and making it harmonize with itself. So I figured out a way to perform it by like instantly recording the first the voice I'm playing and having it play back the other two so it's all like done live. So I was I was really excited about that and then my friend Lewis in Sibrite Five heard a few of those like kind of canon ideas and was like oh this would be could be really cool as like a you know just a live piece and uh so i i did one piece for them and there's was just no way pop rocks yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the sybarites are a string quintet right yeah and they're actually um lewis is a friend from long ago in um, aspen from the festival and we used to we used to play like on the street up front of, outside of uh, paradise bakery and just like you know try to make some cash for for meals and whatnot and so we had like this quintet and we would play like under the sea and we'd play like pachelbel's <laughs> canon and we'd play like mozart first, first symphony we'd do like whatever like we had this whole book and now milan who milan milosavovich was our violist he's now principal of the Met or opera, <laughs> and like it's like it's kind of incredible. And you know, Lewis and the the players that eventually kind of settled in to playing regularly, they started doing official you know things in an official capacity at, at Aspen. Then they won like concert artist guild competition, and you know, so now it's their full time thing. And so it's really special, kind of looking back and seeing how everyone's evolved. But um, that was kind of the connection and. So they do, they do a lot of like shorter pieces, usually like pretty accessible and like fun, and you know you heard that pop rocks, which is short and simple, and just he thought that would be a, a neat thing to play. So, well, the whole album was great. Uh, yeah, sold outliers uh, and the Sarabande, was, and that was also done on Green Umbrella, right? Um, that was done at um, Here Now just okay. recently. Yeah, and then it's gonna be. The, there's a group called Dakota in New York that's going to mm-hmm. perform it oh, this summer. All cellos, right? Um, I think they have a mix of things, but oh, they, they, it's like yeah, it's like a rotating kind of who, people who are involved in different concerts. So they might have done one that was all cellos, but they're they have a festival at Amherst College and they're putting it on 
on there too. So it's exciting to that it's had. I mean, I admittedly haven't written as much as I wish I had since then because I, you know, had two babies and they. So somehow the energy for composing、um, with everything else has. Waned, or I mean, it's not. It's just the back burner. It needs to move back up to the front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but what is that process? That I mean, it was just time. You got to a place where you you just had to express yourself that way, or why was it dormant for so long? I guess. Yeah, I guess I felt. I mean, I love string quartets, and、um, the repertoire is amazing. I love the role of the cello in the quartet, but. I guess there was there was some part of me that felt like I wanted to explore more, and the process of actually writing is like I really enjoy that way more than practicing <laughs> and、exactly. and performing. It's like I like performing, but it's just it's just so like you can't hold on to it, and like a composition you can't hold on to, but. The, there's something about the process of sitting there just quietly working on your thing. Is like I just I really got to like that, and you know it's it's hard to put enough time into it while doing other things. But I think it just came out of that like a kind of curiosity、um, and feeling slightly limited and wanting. Also, I think I would have ideas just seeing other compositions, especially、um, looking through you know. Quartets that we would be sort of perusing, and I just started having ideas for stuff I wanted to do, and、um, yeah. and you just went with it.、Mm-hmm. That's great. Well,、yeah. it seems like a lot of a lot of artists. I've been I just ask everyone basically these days, and there are a lot of closeted composers out there. It's funny yeah, that yeah. Didn't, don't tell anyone. Done it since they were children, and it's like <laughs> something about the climate though. Today is like just do it. It's okay, right? Yeah, yeah. I think we're moving away from that, where everyone was so compartmentalized, and you can do one thing or you can do this. And maybe if one thing that social media has brought is that no, you can literally do whatever you want. Yeah, that's true.、Um, Guilt-free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and oh yeah, I think especially like like we we played a lot with Thomas Addis, and we recorded his his music, and there were ideas in there that. I just I don't know I just kind of it it made me I, th- I think that was around the same time when we were playing a lot of his music and my what I write and have written is nothing like that but it that that was also something that kind of got me curious、Ignited. just thinking a different way yeah, and、something. yeah like yeah、hmm. so then just tell me real quick、um, or it doesn't have to be real quick but tell me I mean where would you like the composition to go your compositions are you going to keep Composing. I mean, this is a priority. Yeah, it's like、um, I. There's、um, what's his name. He so he <laughs> runs the. He's like runs the、uh, Aspen Festival. Alan,、oh, right. Alan Fletcher.、Right? Yes. So he、um, and he's a composer. He's a composer. Yes. And I always was amazed by that. Someone that has that that kind of role, that kind of like administrative and leadership role, that finds the time to compose, and the, it must be so different.、And、I asked him about it, and. He said that every year they he goes to Maine to this little house in, in at the end of the year and just holds up there for a month or two months or whatever and that's when he does his writing and and I really I can't really focus on 
writing anything in a regular day just like i've got two hours i'll try to think about right. like i just the kids and yeah i, like, I gotta go and... pick up the kids and then go to a recording session it's like i'm gonna think of a new thing to write no it's just like it's just not the right environment so i think that's what i'm trying to go toward and it's tough with you know real life but i'm trying to make make the room uh make the space and just you know at the end of this year i'll have a few weeks just like that's all I'm going to be doing and I've had a few ideas that I want to pursue I just need to sit down and good do it right (laughs) pick the pen up yeah and part of me is like well I play the cello I want to play more concerti and I want to write a piece so I'm kind of I don't know if I would write an actual concerto with an orchestra maybe is one idea maybe another idea is um for I don't know something with like chorale or or I don't know. There's something with cello and voice I keep thinking about. Mm. So, but we'll see. There's a gorgeous piece by Gubadalina. Do you know this oh, one? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah did Canto um, of the Sun. Yeah. Okay, so now we have to do the quartet, obviously. Because mm-hmm. you, you guys have some great albums. I've, I've been listening to everything. I'm oh, obsessed yeah? with that Utbush, the Siren. Oh yeah. Is that, and that soprano. Yeah, she's amazing. Like, what is going on there? <laughs> she's incredible. It's like off the charts. Yeah, I we we played my quartet played in in Salzburg um, before we did this piece and they premiered the um, Angel, something Angel. Exterminating Angel. Yes, Exterminating, yes. So they premiered Exterminating Angel and one of the characters is a opera singer in the opera and that was her like and she was singing just, oh yeah. I couldn't, I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. And then after the fact, I was like, oh, that's who we're like playing this piece with. And and so, and she's Audrey Luna's her name, and she's like, she's incredible. She, oh, just, she like lives in Hawaii, just like chills out, and then she goes and like does her opera, does all these production. glorious color tour roles. Yeah, and then like goes home. She's like, and she's like, you know, I'm done with Queen of the Night. I've done it like thousands of times, and I just, I'm done. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I loved working with her. She was, she was awesome, and uh, and Peter Edvish is very, um, like we went to Hungary to rehearse, and we went to Budapest to his. There's this whole Budapest Music Center where Kurtog lives in an apartment there, and like Peter Edfish is there like all all the time. Like he has an office, and and they do all performances of new music like every night. It's like it's, it's amazing. Sounds like heaven. Yeah, it's incredible. So we worked with him on on this piece, and uh, also his quartet and yeah, the correspondence is the correspondence. I love it. Yeah, it's cool. Um, and he's very, he's so intense, you know, he's very oh, is he really? meticulous and every, yeah. So I remember the first time we learned the correspondence quartet was for a green umbrella. And I think it was a situation where nobody wanted to learn the piece, you know, because it's really involved. And and so they're like, hey guys, you want to learn this piece? <laughs> so I think we had like a month to get it together and then we played it for him uh, like the day before. And I was just, I mean, he's also a great conductor and I was just amazed by his uh his ear just hearing like we'd be playing these like clustered harmonics all up way up high and he'd be like no this one's a little too much and this one's too high like just balance and pitch and just picking out the smallest detail and i was just blown away by that it's just incredible so needless to say it was took a lot of energy you know working with him but it was yeah he's very you know really genuine and really passionate um so it was, it was a special time we, we did that and then recorded it and then and toured it as well. All right, so um, 
tell me about the Calder Quartet and um, Calder Quartet. Twenty years of quartetting. Mm-hmm. So tell me, tell me about that. Well, Where to begin with. Yeah, I mean we've we've been through a lot, I guess, from being eighteen year old undergraduates to um, now each of us having families with kids. It's <laughs> it's and all the stages in between, and we all you know we went to USC and. And Colburn, the first year, it was a conservatory. We were there for two years. I think the first graduating class was us and one other person. It was five, five people. <laughs> and then we all decided to move to New York to do the graduate program at Juilliard as a quartet, and then all decided to move back. And so we, we made some big, a lot of big decisions and evolved together. We were able to, you know, all get along and big life decisions yeah it's kind of unbelievable i yeah, well we all know it's incredibly rare yeah and i think you know there's there's never you know a situation like that that doesn't have tension but i it's it is remarkable that we can get along and and coexist you know for that long do and being fun be functional right so now <laughs> i'm obviously you've worked out just how to rehearse and and i'm sure you can do it quite efficiently so was it i'm assuming it wasn't always like that or was it no i no i think um i think the the trick early on was finding what to explore or what what to critique you know what what needs to be better and to not be satisfied with what you're doing and you know find out what those things are that need to be improved and how to go about it um but like any relationship, I mean, communication. So that's mm-hmm. basically, you guys have amazing communication. I think we're pretty um, formal. Like when, when, whenever we've had guests, like a oh, quintet or something, yeah. and they're like, you guys are so polite to each other. And I'm, I'm just thinking, yeah, because if we're not, all hell's going to yeah, break Yeah, this would have lasted <laughs> six months. Yeah. So everyone is very like, like, oh, could you please, like, are you going to do a down bow or up? And can we do the same thing next time? And can we write it down? And, please thank you and so it's you know i think it's always been especially as we've gotten older you know it's been pretty formal as we've rehearsed and we've yeah we've definitely learned how how to rehearse efficiently and kind of know our process for getting a piece from being totally new to sounding good and and we know some things we can't throw together in a month it's just not going to work like we need to learn it, play it, put it away, get it out six months later or something. Um, and other things are like, yeah, we can we can make this happen. So on the subject of maybe compromise and choosing your battles, so that how do you how do you work that out personally? Um, I mean there are things you just have to give up give up on or um, you mean like artistically? Yeah. Or, or like, there's something you want but you think, oh, it's gonna cause too much trouble. Well, um yeah. I like to just think that I'm always right, but no, just I kidding. like that. <laughs> I do that too. It works great. Yeah, it works great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, one one thing is recording. You know, listening to a recording, and just if you feel strongly about something, someone else, and you can't come to an agreement, record it, and it's usually pretty clear. Everyone's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that was that's, that's not working," or "Yeah, that's better," or whatever. Now, do you find that certain people in the group have um, are more familiar with certain composers, so that maybe you defer to somebody who understands bar talk more, or what? Or is it everyone's equal? It's usually, uh, yeah, it's usually pretty equal. It's pretty equal. Yeah, 
unless, I mean, sometimes someone remembers a comment or wrote something in their music specifically right. from years ago, and they're like, this person said this, so we should do that. And, and that can be a good reminder. But yeah, it's usually pretty pretty equal. And we, you know, everyone has their tendencies, so we we know what those are pretty well. Like I tend to play too fast, and John tends to play slower than me, and we have to, you know, it's just like, it's a, it's a thing that you always, it's microscopic, but it's it's like a tendency that's all there, so you always have to kind of just take it in, into account. Or you know, there's thousands of things oh, like gosh. that. But it's like you you get to know how and and sort of predict how everyone's going to react to a certain situation. Even like if it's a performance of a piece, or even a setting, or like you've been traveling all night tonight, and you you have to play, and you're tired. You know, like how people are going to react differently and you're ready for it or <laughs> you're ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know someone's going to be hungry and if they don't eat it's going to be bad and <laughs> you have to make sure they get to eat so you know things like that <laughs> I love that well in preparation preparing your own part like does does the group learn pieces together or are you actually or is it a little bit of both um it's we do actually kind of hack through stuff early on where we might not really know the part that well and just kind of get through it and see what it sounds like. Well, especially with new music, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And everyone is very open to suggestions with, at least as far as I know, <laughs> maybe they're probably harboring resentments quietly, but like <laughs> fingerings and like like personal changes, like, oh, is, I don't know about that, you know, that fingering doesn't seem like <laughs> like that. Is there a better finger? I'm not a violinist, but... But it's just there's something about that one it seems like or they might tell me you know you need to play more because we can't hear you ever and, you know stuff like that so so that influences like your personal choices of how you're learning the piece but we usually like once we sort of survey a piece we usually try to you know have some time before we come back and really go in detail and during that time like know our part pretty right. well so so is the quartet kind of like the ultimate like microscope personally like what have you learned about your own playing or how have you evolved just because of the quartet where maybe that you wouldn't have had that rev you know that's a very in, insight if you were playing in an orchestra or even mm -hmm. as a soloist yeah that's a really good question i would say pitch like intonation is is there's just no Hiding. I think that's derailed many a quartets, right? <laughs> yeah, and you can you can go. I mean, people have their own. Like I've heard soloists that have kind of their own individual intonation that works on top of an orchestra. It's like like sharp. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times. <laughs> like, and so you know, I'm sure it sounds great in some contexts and others. Like I've heard, and I just, I just, I'm like, wow, like where. That has no relationship to the other frequencies in the room, and so but they're selling it. <laughs> but you can, yeah, like if it's a concerto, it works, and if it's it's a very specific thing, a specific way of doing your your pitch organization. And as a cellist, you're most of the time the foundation of a whole stack of harmonies. And I'm not always in tune, but I have learned and thought through pretty in pretty much detail, like how it all actually works and. It is fascinating, and it's really is frustrating as well because it doesn't. It's not a neat and tidy thing. It's and that's kind of what's amazing about it because it's part of nature, and yet there's this discrepancy with tuning. There's this gap where, yeah, you're stacking fifths 
on top of each other to get to an octave, a bunch of octaves up, or you're stacking octaves and you get to a different note. And how do you that? How do you like deal with that? Well, you blame the violist because <laughs> yeah. look who you're talking to right now. I'm, yes, exactly. <laughs> so I definitely like in orchestra. You're you're in, at least for a string player, you're in a section most of the time, and you're as long as your pitch. I mean, it needs to be in tune. But close counts. Yeah. Close is good. Yeah, close very, good. you have to be really close, of course. But you know, it's just a little, it's a little different. And so I'd say that's one awareness. Um, and then another is just sort of like, I think perfecting. Like as you know, as a student, you've got your your teacher you you go to every week, and we kind of became our own teachers and our own um, sort of quality control. You know where you can tell yourself something is good enough or you're not aware of something you're doing, but if you have three other people always, like, trying to play with you and listening to you, that you're going to find out like, all these these various things. And, of course, the one group of four people has a certain limitation about what they can perceive or what their tastes are or whatever is, is a certain flavor. But I think that's something for me that was really helpful early on and, con- like, consistency and, like, really having something polished because uh, I like to just whip something off like not really be prepared and just like perform something and that okay, was my tendency adrenaline. when I was younger and uh, so then you know the little things that really make a difference to someone if, especially if if you're hearing a whole bunch of people playing the same thing it's like that's where that's kind of what something I feel like I took away from my time so it raised your own personal standards yeah that's a much more concise way to say it i yeah. like that <laughs> that's fantastic because the soloist is doing their thing the orchestral musician might be eh, all right that was okay life goes on but the quartet player has to kind of be in between these two worlds right where you're a soloist yeah you can't be too much of a soloist and you have to care more maybe i mean it's a horrible thing to say because of course orchestral musicians care more well you can't i mean you just can't afford to let your playing slip at all like it it's Mm. just like i've heard there are many orchestral players that are amazing and like that was something that inspired me about ron leonard was all the way until he you know he had a health issue last year but he was played you know elgar concerto and he's practicing every day for hours, and and he never stopped. Like he's always improving. And comparing that with you know some other players, section players I've heard over the years. I I remember as a younger, like in high school, like hearing some veterans of the orchestra where I grew up play by themselves, and I was like, I was kind of surprised, you know. And you know, once you're in and and it's a very specific role you're filling playing in the section and you do it for 20 years and you don't really do anything else then that affects your playing in a certain way right you're still good at what you need to do like it still sounds good i'm sure but um it's not as so then how did you develop your own personal routine and what is that routine like what do you have to do every day to to um, to keep your chops up? i mean i'm still kind of a little bit like a of a hack (laughs) i would say i'm not methodical or like i'm not good with routine i'm really not good with routine so i but i do have a good sense now of when i need to put in the time like obviously with that zimmerman concerto i knew every single second i needed to be somehow practicing one way or another or you know if i need to learn a new piece of chamber music or whatever it is i i have a good sense of 
of uh, sort of how much time I'm going to really need to put in. But these days with kids, my practicing usually happens at night. Uh, get everyone to sleep. <laughs> get them in bed. Have a coffee or something and, like, practice. And I, you know, I, I usually find that if I just get every Nowadays, you're always printing out, like, PDFs and, like, you don't actually have a piece of music. So the faster I just get the music in the way I'm going to perform it, just put it in a binder or whatever, write all everything in that I'm going to need and, like, go straight to the hardest parts and just drill those a hundred times more than everything else. Like, that right. is, like goes that. really efficient for me. And so no iPad? I just, I ha- I can't... I, I can't either. I, <laughs> yeah, I've seen so many problems with the pedal, like, connecting. And, oh, oh, that like, looks like a disaster. Oh, no, like, and everyone's waiting for you to, like, figure out how to connect it. And that's fine, but also... <laughs> I mean, maybe it's not, but also, like, <laughs> there's something about, like, the something where it is on a page and, like, turning through it. I noticed this reading ebooks too. Like, I I feel like I'm lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, when I'm actually turning a page and I see it on a specific point and that page is a little dirty and has a tear, right, and right. it's, like, somehow that affects, like, how it's more familiar to me. But when it's, like, a perfectly white screen and, and every yeah. page looks the same, I, I feel like... I don't really know where I am. It's and we all do that kind of meditative thing where you just, right, you're just turning the pages and just looking over it. Yeah, I love it. For that. no reason, just looking, kind of thinking. You can't do that with the iPad. Right, yeah, and I love doing that. But it's all like, mm, next page. <laughs> or then two pages go by. <laughs> right. <laughs> so one thing I was really, um, thought was really fascinating was your Terry Riley album. So can you talk a little bit about that? It's, it's very unique. Yeah. It's vinyl. Yeah, <laughs> we thought it would be appropriate to make um, vinyl version of of these pieces, and they were really early. Especially, the quartet was like kind of early minimalism with these mm-hmm. like drones and stuff. And the the trio is like he cut up a bunch of tape and like glue of, of other pieces and just like glued them back together. That was like the the feeling I got playing it. And I kind of wonder if he did that. I asked him and he was like, oh, I don't remember doing that. But, <laughs> yeah, but it I really see the manuscript? like he had like, there was one spot, it sounded like we were playing like the theme song from some news channel for like three seconds. And then it was like on to like, some, so I just wondered if, I don't know. But well, it was kind of a precursor to NC. I mean, it's almost the same period a few years earlier. That's true. I guess, so yeah. Was, all these little like the modules. Cells and, yeah. The mo- yeah. And, and so these were dug up and they hadn't been recorded. Um, uh, they were presented as part of a minimalist festival, I want to say, if I'm remembering right. This is a long time ago. So I think in L.A., I mean, I remember doing it at the Getty. Oh, there was a Blum, Bloom and Poe? or Right, so after... It was, a gal- oh, it was after that. Yeah, we did do a performance with him there, I think before, the very first time we played these pieces was at the Getty, but I can't remember the name of that that occasion. Anyway, um, <laughs> it was uh, it was fun. I just remember meeting him and the, and his manager Tom Welsh, and like they were both like all chill and just like it, it was you know not what I, I was used to. And we we went you know to his his house to Terry Riley's house in uh, the Bay Area a few times and played played his own music for him. We even played like Haydn for him just to see like what you know what he what he would say. And uh, we we found this sort of, like, similarity in the lack of dynamics and lack of direction. It's all very, like, you know, you could have a whole few pages with no, nothing, just notes. And you kind of have to decide what to do with it. And Did he coach you in the Haydn? 
Or yeah, were, I mean, we we play. I mean, he didn't get. He wasn't like, oh no, no this is all wrong. You have to <laughs> start so over. He like transformed into like this Haydn scholar for a second. <laughs> but he I mean, he did have comments about like dynamics or like the characters and stuff. I remember, but he didn't. You know, he didn't want to say too much. But but what was so special about this album is so it's on vinyl, limited edition, colored vinyl. Yeah, we have the tie dye version. The tie dye, yeah. And there was only seventy five prints made or copies made of it. So, I mean, do you want to talk about what's next for the quartet? Do you want to talk about any of the other albums? Um, well, we also recorded um, Tom Addis's quartets, his two quartets and piano quintet with him. Now the uh, and, Arcadiana yeah. you've recorded twice, right? Right, yeah. Early on we did a recording with Ravel, Arcadiana, and uh, Mozart Dissonance. And, then, and that was before we met Tom. And then this was another situation where we had actually learned the piece already and recorded it and the folks at the LA Phil again said nobody wants to learn this piece it's like hard and I mean they do a lot of hard things but this thing is like it 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 sounds it sounds not bad I remember listening to the recording before we learned it and I was like oh yeah it's all fluid it's fine and it's so hard (laughs) it's so difficult but uh so we had made our own version without you know before we'd even met him but then he ended up inviting us to play with him all over the place. Uh, we went to Australia, went to Sweden, we went, we played with him in UK at Wigmore and yeah, a few other, few other places too. And over time, you know, got to know him and play these pieces for him, but he never really got super detailed about it. He would all say, oh yeah, it sounds great. And then may have one or two things like you might want to do. But then when, when we recorded it, this was in like outside of London in this church, just in the countryside. And it was a beautiful setting and with that one that recording situation the only downside was the um it was in the flight pot path of like heathrow oh, no. so like, <laughs> so the engineer would actually have he had some, an app with like the, all the flights coming in and he'd say oh let's not do a take yet let's just wait and then the plane would like fly over and so he could just see when the planes were coming that's amazing but that was when tom really like all the details really came out and it was like oh wow like he's heard all this all the time he just didn't want to like go to the trouble but here it was a really special uh experience just hearing what he really thought in the utmost detail you know about every part of of his compositions and then recording the quintet with him as well it's like so it completely changed the piece for yeah i mean it's just like all the little details that you know the nuances yeah like there's so much as you know totally opposite of Haydn and Terry Riley is like a, more like Peter Edvish where it's just like every note has like 20 markings on it and and also just character and just other things so it really felt like we were getting as close as we possibly could to what he had imagined yeah it was, it was very special I remember the take of Oh I'll Be On which is like the slow movement near the end of the piece just we did a bunch and and we were trying to do it quieter and more and more intimate and then we finally had one that was just like magic and he just looked so like he didn't say anything but he just looked so like moved you know and it was like oh so cool and i really love the the end result of that do you think some of this um like the music being written today especially by by thomas addis and new music in general needs more of an explanation um I've been wondering this lately because I've been talking to people and I've experienced giving an audience more of an explanation and totally having a different experience. I think, I mean, we've we've found that when we're playing concerts, 
in various settings, most of the time, it's definitely appreciated to just say something. Even if it's, if you say one sentence, like, it, I think it's just the effect of someone saying connecting, a, a right? word, like just a word. <laughs> hearing someone's voice, like, just connecting, yeah, connecting yeah. is, it's not like a silent presentation of the concert. And, you know, in many settings, we don't, we don't speak if, if we're playing in New York or, or somewhere more, I don't know, it's, it's like you might get criticized if you play, you know, in certain settings and give like a talk. But most audiences, I feel like they do, if they're not already kind of experts and they're just there to hear a concert, they do appreciate having just something to latch onto and a little background. Can, yeah, and from there they can like make their own, they fill out their own thing and then they come tell you all about it. And if you don't give them, throw them any bone, then they're just like, oh, I don't really get that. <laughs> right. And then they get, then they shut down and turn off. Yeah. And, you know, I like the idea that music should speak for itself, but, and in a lot of settings it can, but I don't think it hurts to like, say, oh, no, say a thing not. or two. You no, know? I'm just always wondering as performers if we should be doing more. Right, yeah. Even like performing less, shorter concert, more drinking and talking. Drinking's another. Well, (laughs) people talk about audiences and they worry about. Like, I was playing at one recently and, you know, they had a QA afterwards. It was supposed to be, you know, asking the performers about, you know, what's, where's your instrument from or whatever. Like, (laughs) and instead it turned into this like town hall vibe where I think it must have been one of the supporters was like, God, there's no young people here and kind of criticizing the, uh, the, you know, the, the person who runs the series, and he's like, well, well, you know, there's another, there's a, whatever, there's a Dodgers game today, or, you know, something. And, and I'm just, I didn't say anything. I didn't want to get involved, but I'm like, tickets are $86. And there's, yeah, there's nothing to drink. <laughs> if it was free and you had some beers, like, there'd be tons of people. So right. it's, it's right. pretty simple. But I understand. It is a challenge. It's a real challenge, but, like, but a lot of times people overlook just the fact that it costs a lot of money to go to a concert a lot of times. Right, right. right. And we're not quite, I mean, it's kind of a paradigm shift happening, right? Because there's an older crowd and maybe they want that. And there's a younger crowd that wants the beer and maybe right, less yeah, music, maybe a little yeah. bit more crossover. So are you noticing that with the promoters, that you're having to adjust programs or? We've done a few, like in a few settings where it's uh like we might have a main recital with the quartet and then we'd have like another night that's like an hour long, no break, and like people are like trying wine. Like mm-hmm. we, we did one in for Vale Bravo, Bravo Vale, where this Andres Hillbork quartet we'd been playing was commissioned by the owner of a winery, Arietta Wines. So the event they did was they got a bunch of wines and like the winery donated them for the concert and everyone tried the wine and <laughs> We played that and some other stuff. And sounds great. Everyone had a great time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so amazing. I think people, yeah, it's, especially like a place like that, it's not, it's a little harder to sell like chamber music, especially like modern chamber music in a place like Vale, which is pretty conservative and, and they're not exposed to as much like, as, as um, you know, like Aspen Festival or something. It's like, and we, so in a lot of different settings, we've done things like that as a more informal kind of concert. So what's next for the quartet this coming season or projects? Yeah, we're we're doing um, a, a bunch of performances with Camerata Pacifica uh, starting the fall. And then also we've recorded this Beethoven album with Anders Hilborg piece I was talking about. So we did Opus uh, 131 and Opus 18, number 3. 
and then Anders Hilborg's Cones Guard variations, and that's going to be on Pentatone Records, and they're they're into the like super high end audio quality. So all the recordings are done in surround sound and like the highest whatever many bits or whatever. And so doing that was, um, I mean, just hearing even in the booth, like it, it sounded really really nice. So we'll we'll be releasing that and then. You know, doing concerts surrounding that as well. And this, for this year, this summer, where everyone is, like, buried in, in, like, diapers and everything. We've got six six kids under the age of four, or one just turned four, um, between the four of us. And so everyone is kind of readjusting to life with, with kids and, like, how to balance everything and rethinking, you know, how long do you want to be on the road? Do you want to be in... Europe for three weeks, twice a year, or do you, you know, it's like sort of finding the new, the new uh, sweet spot for how much we want to be traveling. <laughs> I love that buried in diapers. That'll be the title of your <laughs> buried in diapers. Yeah, uh, Eric Byers, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chop Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>